The Theonauts, episode 24. The one where if it was good for Peter, it's good enough for me. The Theonauts Podcast. Christian news from around the globe. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. It is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings is to search out a matter. Explore the vast reaches of God's Word. Hello, all you Codex Theonaticuses. Nice. Hey, guys. <laughs> Put some thought into that one. That was pretty clever. That was pretty clever. You know what I love? Our intro music. I just get to dancing. Boom, 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 boom. I'm really super psyched up yeah. now. Thank you, Garage Band. Yes. All that was is a handful of loops thrown together. I don't know, man. I think you could give Dead Mouse a run for his money. <laughs> just saying. Just saying. <laughs> I'm David Gaddy. I'm Jeremiah Orr. Together we are the, the Theonauts. Awesomeness. How you doing, David? Good. How's your day been? Um, hectic. Crazy. <laughs> Getting my uh, car inspected. Mm-hmm. Which uh, they told me I needed new wipers and a new cover plate for my rear tail light. Tail light. Thank you. Yeah. Just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this is on Big Blue, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm on the sweet 1985 GMC Sierra. It's a beast. <laughs> <laughs> it's like electric blue. Yeah. I named it actually Hank, and okay. then the youth named it Hank the Wonder Nut. <laughs> But I named after Hank McCoy, the Beast, the original Beast oh, from yeah. X Men. Yeah, because yeah. he's big and blue. That's right. I thought it was funny. Wow. Yeah. So, the, so the kids get that one? Do they understand it? No, nobody understands that unless I'm like, "Hey guys." Well, Beast is in the new X Men movies. <laughs> yeah, he is. That's true. So maybe some new geeks get it. <laughs> <laughs> I remember telling you about that. And you're like, you should paint a picture of Beast on the hood. Yeah. You remember that? <laughs> I totally should still do that. But anyways, yeah, that'd be <laughs> awesome. So yeah. Oh, okay. So okay, we started uh, the uh, the whole T-shirt thing I was telling you about. Yeah. Holycube.com. Holycube. Uh, and I'm trying to generate some traffic on the website. Uh huh. And <laughs> so I said to uh, pay old Mark Zuckerberg. Oh yeah, some money. To, huh? <laughs> to try and get some more traffic. And oh, that thing's you know, man, generating traffic in the internet world these days is, oh, man, it's a pain. I bet. Used to back in the day, you could uh, use the right meta keywords or whatever, yeah. and bammo, you know, Google would explode. Would just, yeah, you right. just pop up there, but. Nowadays, it's like, no, they've got this real complex formula, algorithm, and everything. And there's full-time jobs of people that do nothing but search engine optimization. Yeah. So you basically have to pay. Right. Especially if you're in a competitive market where there's lots of websites. Sure. So... You uh, anyway, so I'm paying, I'm paying Facebook. You, you gave Facebook to, money to, to to try and promote yeah. the the website, and uh, uh, it's I'm getting a little bit of traffic. But what I thought was funny was I had one guy comment on. Okay, the way this works, Facebook puts your link to your website or whatever in people's 
news feed, right? Like randomly. So they just get it. So yeah, you, it, well, it's not random. It's based on things you what like. you've searched or like, yeah. <clears throat> right? So if you have been sh- searching for Christian T-shirts and stuff like that, um, or if you liked similar movies, uh-huh. or whatever, um, it would pop up in your news feed. Okay, right. so you can actually like and comment on the ad, huh. which I never even thought about. But I had I've got people liking the ad. <laughs> it's like, no, go to the website. Yeah, don't just <laughs> like, like me. Buy a shirt. <laughs> well, I don't mind them liking like my page or, or yeah. whatever. But they're liking the ad. And then I had one guy comment on the ad, and it's some old retired guy. And he says, uh, he says, yeah, so-called believers need props like these so that they can look like they're doing what they would never in a million years really do in their own lives. Maybe <laughs> it's like, maybe we should act like the old adage, if you were on trial for Christianity, what would the evidence of your would conviction there be? Enough be? evidence to convict you? <laughs> oh, my goodness. And I was like, wow. So um, that's awesome. So I, normally I would just let things like that, you know, go. Yeah. Because you don't want to get in these Facebook debates and stuff. Never. But <laughs> seeing how I'm trying to generate interest in right. <laughs> someone going to the website, I had to like comment something on that. So I went in there and I basically said, because to me this is really weird because I've heard this argument before. People, there's a lot of people that are totally against Christian gear. Like right. you don't wear, you don't need a t-shirt. Yeah. For people to know you're a Christian, it should be evident in your lives. Okay, I agree with that. Sure. And what he said is true to some degree, um, but it's not true in every case. And it's not even probably true in most often, you know. I mean, <laughs> so, you know, I had to go on there and comment and basically say that and say that, uh, you know, why is it legitimate, even Christians, it's legitimate for you to wait to. Um, endorse your favorite football team, right? You know, Boomer Sooners. Boomer. <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 okay for you to wear a T-shirt of your favorite comic book series or your favorite movie or or whatever, or even just a brand, Abercrombie and and Fitch. whatever it is. <laughs> so, <laughs> American Eagle or whatever you can. You know, Christians don't take big issues with that, right? But the minute you try to endorse. God, God, something that you should love as much as these movies and sports and everything else that you're endorsing. Right. The minute you try to endorse, you know, your faith, it's all hypocrite. Yeah, I don't know, <laughs> man. For me, it's just like, hey, it's a cool T-shirt. Go buy the T-shirt. That's an awesome T-shirt, right? And not only that, you, you know, you may get somebody that asks you about what the meaning is right. or symbolism isn't that, and you can tell them that. But beyond that, yeah, it's just like, I mean, I wear Sooner gear because I like the Sooner. So mm-hmm. why not, you know, wear God yeah. gear? Because I like God. But, you know, and I'm not trying to reduce God to a exactly. logo. It's not a bumper sticker. And it's not, I mean, just right. putting on a Christian t-shirt doesn't make you a Christian. Right. But my whole argument at the end was basically hypocrisy comes in all shapes and sizes. Oh, yeah. For example, uh, I could use the same phrase he used about, you know, making it look like you're doing something that you would never in a million years do. 
Well, there's a lot of people who go to church, so they'll look like the, the type of people or tithe or do what you know, right. do the right thing, quote unquote. And yeah. you know, so so people get, okay. Does going to church because some people go to church to look good? Does that make going to church a bad thing? <laughs> well, no, not at all. No, it's, it's <laughs> I don't know. It's just a weird well, it, mindset to me. It is if it's you know a bad church, but. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> but anyway, that's uh, that's, that's neither here nor there. I had to rant a little bit because of <laughs> yeah. So have you Facebook sold any shirts yet? To me, uh, not to anybody other than me. <laughs> <laughs> so you bought a shirt? Well, uh, from yeah, yourself? basically because I uh, you want to see. I the... need to see the quality before. Oh gosh, gotcha. I don't want someone else buying it and going, uh, "Hey, this, this is, is crap. junk." Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, but uh, hey, it's 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 getting there. Uh, at least it's generating some traffic. Yeah, it hasn't so, popped up on mine yet. So has it not? No. Oh, okay. Yeah, share it to me, and I'll send it to all the kids. Okay. Cool. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> sometimes yeah. I forget there's a microphone in front of Good us. Thing I'm not that. relying on that for a living. But. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, starting out anything is especially when it's internet related. I mean, it takes a while. I imagine. Going, I imagine. So. Try Twitter, man. Twitter's the best. Oh, that's fine. Yeah, because so. I mean, there's so many people on Twitter now. Yeah, Facebook's like dropping. Well, you know what? I've heard the number one uh, for marketing is. Instagram, yeah, Instagram. People like pictures, man. Sure, and and uh, the the hashtags are a big part of Instagram. And so if you're hashtagging the right things, you can like take off. It's right. really amazing. That's awesome. All right, all right. And now the news. Well, there's an interesting story developing um, in uh, uh, Missouri about a small, yeah, rural town, Missouri. It's Nevada (laughs) and Missouri. That's right. It's Nevada and Missouri. (laughs) But anyways, uh, there's a uh, an interesting story developing in Missouri uh, Mm -hmm. from the small town city of Baldwin. Um, Baldwin. Yeah. We're not going to go there. Yeah, the city of Baldwin, Missouri. Um, I guess apparently there was. A- I'm going to get you, Baldwin, Missouri. <laughs> Alec Baldwin. <laughs> okay. Anyways, I told you we weren't going to go I, there. I go <laughs> now I feel bad. <laughs> Lord, I apologize. Okay. Anyways, so there's a story coming out of small town Baldwin, Missouri. It's it's basically another story of about a million we've heard before, mm-hmm. but this one's generating quite a buzz, uh, especially on Reddit and some other websites. Um, there's an alderman that proposed um, uh, having plaques put up all around Baldwin to show uh, unity and to show uh, what I guess that they were saying to show. Um, just community support that's saying God we trust okay um, and they were going to be plaques placed on all major public buildings and stuff just in God we trust and uh, it was being voted on in the uh, the board of aldermen were voting on it and um, um, 
the Knights of Columbus, the Holy Infant Knights of Columbus. I don't know if you've heard of that. It's an organization a lot like the the Shriners or something, but it was like it's a Catholic organization, so it's a religious men's organization. They they pledged that if it happened, they would donate seven hundred and fifty dollars towards it to put up the plaques. And so a lot of people are up in arms, of course, naturally about this. And uh, last week, a, uh, a board member at the board member meeting, an atheist by the name of Nikki uh, Mongo, stood up and <laughs> made a stirring speech. And so they voted it down um, and voted instead to put up E Pluribus Unum. Which is the original, I guess, so our original So didn't, didn't like it. That's right. <laughs> and a lot of people didn't like it, according to, to the article I'm reading. Um, so, e pluribus unum. It was voted 6-2 to two against putting up in God We Trust uh, signs. So, they're talking about putting up e pluribus unum, which means uh, out of the many one. Right, um, and using that as unity, anyways. Right, and right. Uh, part of her speech, she she gave this huge speech, uh, basically. Um, Mongo, yeah, Mongo. That's her name, Mongo, M O U N G O. Anyways, uh, Mongo's coming. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. She, Mongo hate God. <laughs> can't even do this oh my goodness i was gonna read you a whole thing all right um she says this uh there are many there are the people who live next door to you all of you they're your children's teachers your trusted physician your firefighters ems veterans and soldiers and yes even your local law enforcement we are many we are diverse interestingly we have received support from members of the holy infant church who are also afraid to speak out um may you know them with their uh when their ties begin to wither <laughs> let's wow. yeah she says let's patronize our community but not with the use of entry patronizing religious slogans this is what she said uh if the city of Baldwin is truly interested in promoting patriotism i propose creating a citizens for a better Baldwin community program to honor citizens for their good work what embodies patriotism the desire to improve your community more than the giving of yourself to that community isn't that what being a patriot is all about religion does not a patriot make. I will forward this proposal to your representative emails later for your review and, con- and consideration. So she made this big speech saying, listen, it's not about these empty phraseology. It's about being a good citizen. And, I said, and it's really interesting because it, everything shifted towards her favor after she made the speech. So you're wondering, you know, um, are we becoming so secularized as a society that in God we trust is not our national slogan anymore, you know, and right. it's, it's actually going to be uh, a more diverse. And I understand diverse culturality and, uh, you know. Yeah, but where's, and this is the, what gets me is why is this so offensive? That's what I, okay, so maybe you don't buy into that per se, uh, but why is it so offensive to you if if the, if the majority of the community and see that's what we don't really know right. we got one voice in the wilderness saying that she is representative of all your teachers and doctors and everything else how true is that we don't know that that's true um, I bet if you were to to put it up to a vote and poll people 
you'd probably get a different slant. But people are so afraid of offending somebody yeah. that it's like, oh, no, okay, well, I guess E Pluribus Unum is okay. And so you cave in on that. Right. But, and, and I mean, for my faith, it doesn't matter one way or the other. I don't need the endorsement of the community or signs up, you know, in the community to make it work for me. Um, so why? I don't know. It doesn't bother me that much, except right. for it's just the principle of the matter. Right. <laughs> Well, and I, I can actually see her argument as an atheist saying, you know, this doesn't do anything to me as far as uh, other than, you know, I don't trust in God. So mm-hmm. why, you know, does that make me any less of a citizen? Uh, and my answer is no, it doesn't. Uh, but again, it's it's about the majority. Yeah. So, um, so how many people are non-affected by it Where versus how many people in the community might be more uplifted with in God we trust than e pluribus unum? I don't know what that Latin phrase means. <laughs> if you had to told me what it meant right then, I mean, I know it's on my money. <laughs> <laughs> but so is in God we trust. Right. <laughs> so, but, but that's what I'm getting at is you put a big sign that says something in Latin. Like, okay, you're in Missouri. <laughs> Missouri. Right? You're in Missouri. You're in Missouri. There's how many Latin speakers are just wandering around the streets? Now, I know E Pluribus Unum is a big... Because we all rec- we're right. familiar with that term, but still, is it going to have the same power than if you're a God fearing community? And if they if they are largely Christian community, then I would think that what is the benefit to the whole right. of the community, the majority of the community? Right. And maybe it's all maybe they are all atheists in that community, and there's a point. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> And she's she was big on the fact that uh, you know we're taking this bribe from the Knights of Columbus, a religious organization, for a, a secular thing, and so you know why in the world are we doing that anyway? So it's a really interesting debate. I have an idea. We should have people call in and comment on what they think about this. Yes, I would love what to hear your, your opinion. That's right. That's right. So uh, a couple more stories, real quick. Um, you know the iPhone six. Has just come out. Yes, um, and everybody's excited about that. Except for yes. there's there's a hashtag. We talked about hashtags <laughs> earlier. There's a hashtag that is going viral right now, and it's hashtag Bendgate, and it's this big thing about the iPhone six. I guess it's made out of a tin alloy, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and so they made it super thin. Yeah, they made it super thin, and because of its large, it's it's a larger phone now. Um, I guess uh, people are claiming that when they put it in their back pockets, if they're wearing skinny jeans or tight jeans or whatever, they put it in their back pockets, they sit, sit, they get up, their iPhone is bent. Mm, Okay? Um, And so many people are saying this is happening. Actually, it started with a a famous, uh, now famous YouTube video. Uh, The Unbox Therapy um, demonstrated the iPhone 6 and it showed that it bent really easily. The guy pretty much in the video, you can go to YouTube and check it out, but he just holds it and he slightly bends it. <laughs> so it's really interesting, you know, that uh, I, I, uh, Apple's stock has kind of dropped significantly because of this and I'm wondering what's going to happen here. I'll read the uh, um, 
a little blurb uh, from Mashable.com. In a now famous YouTube video, Unbox Therapy demonstrated how the 7.1 millimeter thick device could bend with nothing but one spare hands. In the video, the device gives uh, at what might be considered the weakest point around the two volume control buttons where the aluminum chassis uh, is thinnest. Um, and it's so, so it's like this he just bends it right? right and so people are all up in arms about this so I was wondering I was hoping you had your iPhone 6 <laughs> no <laughs> and David hasn't gotten it yet so. no I'm on AT&T and they're lagging behind <laughs> you know if you were on Verizon just saying <laughs> anyways uh, hey well I'm not advertising for anybody but I saw an ad on for Sprint the other day about iPhone 6 oh really if you get the iPhone 6 with Sprint it's like uh, they'll buy out your current contract, and then it's fifty bucks a month. Are you serious? Yeah, I haven't seen anything in that in that range. You wow. know, so that was pretty impressive. I wonder, uh, huh? I wonder how there's, good there's the service is. Well, and yeah, I don't know because yeah, around here I don't know what the sprint coverage is. <laughs> around here, there ain't much service out in these booger woods. Nobody got sprint Anyways, around here. So I thought that was a really interesting story that Apple is uh, starting to struggle a bit. That and I heard that the eight iOS eight um, they recalled. Yeah, yeah, they recalled the iOS eight. What, what's up with that? Do you know? Well, they recalled uh, an update to it that apparently the update fried. People's communication ability, <laughs> so it stopped being a phone. <laughs> so it's like, oh, dude. So yeah, it's, it's there's a cartoon in that somewhere. You <laughs> there's know? a little bit of a black eye. Yeah, there's a guy that has a Switch Army knife that has like a spoon and a corkscrew, and the guy's like, "Where's the knife?" Uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So. You know, and I've seen, you know, one post of the guy was like, this is why I don't, I'm not an early adopter for any new technology yeah. because of this. Right. And that's, there's some, you know, valid points to be made there. Um, one of the things is it just becomes a lot more apparent whenever it happens to Apple because Apple has such a huge market share that, like, uh, I saw a chart the other day that showed that, uh, that, from people who own, say, an Android phone versus people who own an iPhone, it's pretty much 50-50. It depends on which poll you look at as yeah. to which one's leading. But when you look at the poll that shows the usage of how many users are on iOS per hour versus how many users are on Android per hour, it is an astronomical difference. Sure. Like 80,000 people are on their iPhones per hour. And it's like less than ten thousand on uh, on Android. Wow. It's crazy. It's a crazy difference. So maybe it's just that you know the people who are on I- iPhones are kind of hooked or addicted to their technology. Maybe versus, maybe so. Versus, yeah, I'm joking. <laughs> I'm playing with you. I'm just hey, you. I, so. you know what? I can't say anything because I got an iPad this week. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like your text. It said, yeah. Uh, yeah, I just took a bite out of the apple. <laughs> so you're going yeah. to get expelled from the garden. That's now. right. Get out of there quick. All right. One more, uh, one more quick, uh, um, News news article I ran across from uh, Christianity Today. Uh, Lifeway did a new research 
uh, poll on mil- mental illness, um, and I imagine it's because of the recent uh, stuff with uh, Robin Williams. Right. Kind of everybody's blowing up talking about that. Um, these are their findings. Something really interesting. How often pastors speak to church uh, in sermons or in large groups about mental illness? Uh, 3% said several times a month. 4% said about once a month. Uh, 26% said several times a year. 60 cents percent said uh never or rarely or maybe once a year so it sounds like pastors aren't really talking about it um and then um they asked if churches uh want their church to talk pastors want their church to talk openly about mental illness uh so the topic will not be taboo 65 percent agree with that yes um and then 59 percent uh Agree with uh, a mental illness. So among families of a person, yeah, with so pretty much sixty nine people, sixty nine five percent people agree. And then the one that was most interesting to me: nearly one in four pastors acknowledge that they have personally struggled with mental illness. Wow, one in four pastors. That's that's not surprising. It's a, it could be a uh, I can understand where that could be a high uh, pressure. Uh, position, yeah. So wow, um, half of those pastors said the illness has been diagnosed according to the poll. Uh, one in four U.S. adults experience mental illness in a given year, according to the National Alliance for Mental Illness. Uh, recent deaths by suicide of high-profile pastors' children, including Rick Warren's son Matthew, Joel Hunter's son Isaac, have prompted increased attention to mental illness from pastors' pulpits and pens. Warren launched the Gathering on Mental Health at the at the church uh, this past spring, and high-profile pastors, including New Spring Church, uh, Perry Noble, have publicly documented their struggles with mental illness. So it sounds like, you know, this has been such a closed behind doors thing for such a long time and now it's finally yeah, to our detriment right but, and i mean that's part of the problem is it it's exasperated by the fact that um th- that no one's talking about it so right. everyone there's this ongoing thing like we talked about in our previous podcast about depression where people think that it's a lack of faith you need a man up you need sure. a, and all that type of, of mentality because there's not enough education coming out to the lay people who don't have depression to let them know that no this is as serious as any medical condition that it is not a symptom of lack of faith. It's not a symptom of someone who is um, just not, you know, relying on God and that sort of thing. Right. So. Right. So, you know, it's a, it's an important issue to talk about, and uh, I'm excited that, that we're finally getting it out there. So, right. anyways, that's awesome. all I had for the news. Sounds good. Okay, last week we talked about um, bibliography. Yeah. Or ology. Bibliology. What what was that again? What does that mean exactly? So we studied the Bible last week. Exactly. Good. The Bible itself. So I thought that would be a good segue 
Uh, well, you know, tying it into uh, what we talked about the week before. Was it the week before? No, before or is it two before, weeks before? Before that, before that. I don't know. <laughs> the last time we talked about history. History, yes. So That's this right. is a great tie-in. Uh, so the timing is pretty good for our history uh, and tying that into our study of the Bible and what the Bible is. Uh, so what we want to talk about today is... The uh, Bible translations, right? Because in the translation process and how that ties into both the historical, um, uh, historically where the Bible has been, and also into uh, the idea of what the Bible is and how is it best read and used and and all that good stuff. So can we trust our translation? Last week we talked about can we trust the Bible? Well, what Bible? You know, and a lot, right. of, a lot of people I get this. I get asked a lot, uh, which Bible should I use? And um, so, <clears throat> I think that this is a good thing that 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 comes into play here. So, um, what's your favorite Bible translation ever? Yeah. Oh my goodness! And why? <laughs> I just I use so many of them. In you know in in my Bible study stuff and mm-hmm. especially my favorite one to read and study in is the English Standard Version. Okay, because I believe it's extremely accurate. Um, it's a it's not a thought for thought translation. It's Which a, we'll get to that right. in a little bit. It's a word for word translation, pretty right, much, right. and uh, and it, I, I just think it's it's done excellently. So, um, but my favorite one to teach in. To actually teach students because it's just so simple uh, to understand it is uh, the Holman mm-hmm. Christian or the New Living. I like the New Living, but the Holman combines accuracy with uh, with understandability a lot better than the New Living Translation. New Living Translation is all about being understood so much so that it gives up kind of some of its right. accuracy. And, the, and that's what we're, you know. A lot of what we're going to talk about sure. too is. There is this balance that happens between uh, being completely accurate and losing the thought. Because you can lose the thought by trying to be too accurate. That's exactly right. So, And we'll talk about all that stuff in, in a little bit. So, Well, currently I am reading from the New Century version more than anything these days. In CV. Um, huh. That was just a random thing. Um, Melanie was uh, reading it with someone in her Bible study, and she was like, have you read any of this translation? I was like, no, I haven't really looked at it that much. I did a little bit of research on it, looked at it, and the thing that amazed me were a couple of passages that are really wordy. They're just wordy. They were written wordy. Right. Like uh, uh, Romans 7 at the end, whenever Paul is saying, that which I do, I do not, and that which I wish I would do, I don't do, and and it's all this... uh, Right. It gets wordy in whatever translation you're in. And I was reading that in the NCB. I was like, wow, that really words that well. Right. Where you can really get your head around Paul's dilemma very well. And uh, So what is that one? It's uh, NCB. It's a thought for thought. Is it? Um, but it's... Um, the, the thing that... Um, okay, I see. It, the thing that... that I am focused on here is that, okay, I read from it a lot, but if I'm going to do a deep study or if I'm going to um, uh, 
guess I teach from it some, uh, quite a bit too because of its easy to understand right. vernacular. But if I'm going to do a deep study or anything like that, I prefer the ancient translations. Personally, um, I go back to King James, William Tyndale's translation, uh, some of the older ones. Sure. Mainly because, um, well, a couple of reasons. One, I like the poetic structure. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Definitely. And two, um, it, the, it, it is very, very word for word, and it uses the manuscripts I prefer. Yeah. So there are passages that are just completely missing from almost all the new translations, and we'll talk about why those right. are missing here in a minute. But, um, but so I like to go back and get, I guess, a fuller understanding uh, or a full or a fuller text. Right. You know, it's got all it, it, all five thousand manuscripts of the majority text are there. Yeah. The contents are there. Definitely. <clears throat> Do you uh, when you memorize scripture? Is it? Do you find it easier? I find it easier to memorize in like the King James or the New King James than any other translation. I don't really? know why, but it's just simple for me. To well, do I'll be that. honest with you. I don't devote a lot of time to memorization. Oh yeah. Um, I, I spend more time in um, assertion of the meaning of the text and the context and that sort of thing. So if I commit, if I'm trying to commit something to memory, I'm going to be trying to commit. The location of the passage right. to memory. So, like, if if you say, "Well, what is exactly in uh, Genesis 11?" I can go Tower of Babel, you know, or whatever. Right. I mean, so, I, I try to 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 study more like that. Spend my time, my memorization time, in putting the the context in my memory so that I can find the the passages I sure. want on the fly without going, oh, let me go pull up a, con- a concordance somewhere. Right. So, but anyway, but so it really doesn't matter which huh. translation I'm using for that type of huh. of method. For me, it's, so. I don't know why, it's just easy to do it in the... But well, it is poetic. Yeah. So that probably, probably it. has something to do with it. And uh, that's one thing that I want to talk about just real quick before we jump into this too much, <laughs> is I heard a podcast the other day that... This guy just nailed it, um, and I'll go ahead and throw throw them out there, uh, uh, throw them a bone. They're called the Sci Fi Christian, and they've actually been <laughs> they've actually been podcasting for a while. They've got a lot of episodes under their belt, and some of it can be a little dry. And uh, but they did this this um, this podcast the other day on the aesthetics of the Bible, huh. and what was interesting about their their discussion is is he was running off of a quote from an atheist who said he preferred the King James translation over all the new translations. And the reason he gave, now this is an atheist, okay? So he said the reason why the atheist liked the King James translation was because it was beautiful. It was like reading Shakespeare. It was like reading, whereas the other ones aren't as poetic and aren't as beautiful in their language. Sure. So... Uh, that makes sense. So he brought it up. Are we as Christians concerned about aesthetics? Hmm. And I think he's got a really good point when he says, no, Christians in general aren't concerned about aesthetics. They're they're interested in doctrine and accuracy. Right. So much so that they throw out, they throw out, out the aesthetics yeah. of it. So uh, that's why you see so many people going away from 
the ancient translations, right? Because they're they they'll easily trade out ease of re, uh, ease, um, ease of reading. They'll throw out the the aesthetic side of it to make it easier to read, right? right. And um, so that they can get the point across. And I don't know if that speaks to our um, what do you call it? Our um, attention deficit <laughs> deficiency, our ADD, <laughs> or what? That we're just too much on the on the go. I want to be able to pick up and read my Bible passage and, and get it, know what it means. Right, and that's that it. I don't want to spend time on it. Right. I, I don't know if that's where we are. I'm just postulating. So, well, I'll tell you this: when, whenever my kids pick up a, a King James version, uh, it's almost like kryptonite. Oh yeah, they don't want it. No, at all, because it's like I don't. This isn't. What is this? You know, but you know, when they pick up Shakespeare, they do the same thing. I think I do. You have any kids that are into the arts, though? That are into Shakespeare? Just a just a couple, and and, you know, one of them in particular who would probably do well reading the the King James. but that's that's about it. Everybody else, the big thing is they want to know what does it mean. I want to know, and if right. I don't know what it means, and then I don't want to. Well, there is value to that. Yeah, oh, not, definitely. Not, I wouldn't discard that at all. I'm just saying, based on it was an interesting study on how Christians view aesthetics, and right. his opinion was that's why most Christian movies are bad. Huh. Is because they're so focused huh. on the message, and they're so focused on making sure they don't offend somebody, and making sure that it's a child, it's age appropriate, yeah. that they're putting all their focuses that they suck creatively, <laughs> right? that all the creativity goes whoo, yeah. out the window, yeah. and there's no aesthetic beauty to it. Yeah. And of course, that you know, there's exceptions to that rule, like uh, the Passion or whatever, yeah. which is very aesthetic. Versus, right. but I don't know. I just think it's kind of interesting. Um, I know we hate on the King James a lot, mainly because people get crazy spun up about it. But uh, but I actually love the King James quite a bit. Sure, uh, I don't like it as much as the earlier ones, like the Tyndale translation. But um, wait, what? There are <clears throat> earlier translations of yes. the King James. <laughs> okay, so let's let's get rolling here because the time is moving on. Right. So. Um, First off, a quick overview of the history of the Bible itself. Okay, the the Old Testament was written beginning in about 1500 B.C. Right. To 400 B.C. That's the Old Testament. 480. No, 400 B.C. Before Christ. Oh, before Christ. That's right. I'm sorry. My bad. (laughs) My bad. So, or B.C.E., before Common Era, if you're an atheist. (laughs) (laughs) So, Thank you for that. So, I don't think any atheists listen to our podcast. Yeah, I, I want to hear from you. That's right. <laughs> Scream at us, whatever. Yeah. We'll put you on the air. <laughs> so, okay, so uh, Old Testament was written way back. So anywhere that's about 1,000 years between 1500 and 400 uh, B.C. The New Testament then was written starting in about 45 A.D. to 100 A.D. So, right. Okay, so this is after Jesus' death. You know, none of the New Testament was written until Jesus died. After fifteen years after yes, Jesus, yes, yes. So, and I years. believe Mark, I think, is the earliest that's, New Testament. Yeah, right. that's right. So, um, <clears throat> that's what I believe. So, anyway, and many people say Matthew is. Yeah, there's some debates about all that stuff, but yeah. where you know, they're six all one wrong. Way, Mark's half, the first. <laughs> six one way, half a dozen another. <laughs> it doesn't matter. No, it's it's but, my way. But, <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Totally joking. Totally joking. Now, so the transmission method. Before um, 
before zero AD or zero BC, whichever you want to call it. <laughs> yeah. Before then, almost everything was written on scrolls made from le- leather. Early on, it was made out. Scrolls were made out of leather. Right. Um, but as it progressed, they began to make paper out of of, of weeds. Right. And stuff it called papyrus. Pap- papyrus. Papyrus. So you you uh, you have this um, these scrolls that are either on papyrus. Papyrus, we want to say, <laughs> or their leather, right? And um, <clears throat> so, but then after um, after the turn of the clock, from about one A.D. on, then uh, the papyrus was put into a codex form. So the the word codex means book form. Right. So basically, you go to the library, you're picking up a codex. Codex. So, uh, so your your yeah your uh, paperback is a codex, right? So b- beforehand, these pages were sewn together to create a scroll, right? A long yeah. They piece. were still pages. You didn't flip the pages, right? But the pages were sewn together, right? And uh, now they started binding them mm-hmm. together in a book form. That so when you see the word codex in history, don't get all freaked out. Can you imagine the first? I'm weird, but can you imagine the first guy to be like, what if we uh, flipped the page over, wrote on the back of it, and then binded it? Dude, it, we'd be able to get twice as much content. Eureka! I'm going to sell this. Need a patent. That's go right. Go to the patent office. <laughs> that's so cool. Anyways, that's neat. So from done. 1 to 200 AD, um, the papyrus, papyrus codexes were the, that was the primary um the primary form of transmission. Form, yep. However, in 200, all the way to 1400 AD, we moved from that to vellum, which a vellum is a part is a um, um, is a type of, of paper made from calves or antelopes. The stomach, right? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it's the hooves. Comes from, I don't know. The eyes. It might be uh, the the hair. The I don't know. The leather or whatever I don't know. It's some kind of if, if you're animal byproduct. Yeah, if you're if you're a, a, pet, if you're a bibliotech and you know exactly, <laughs> then call us and let us know. That's right. <laughs> so vellum. Well, okay, it was either vellum or parchment. Parchment right. parchment's not a fancy word for paper, which is what I kind of always thought it was. Sure, parchment is uh, paper made from sheep or goats. <laughs> so vellum. So you got your calves and your yes, yeah, an antelope codex. That's right. Or is it a goat codex? <laughs> but that didn't sound proper. They both stink. It doesn't matter. <laughs> so it became vellum and parchment. Right. Okay. And then in 1400, on to the to the modern era, you have uh, paper that has been you know made from all kinds of different plants. Sure. So and trees. So. Um, and that is largely because of the printing press came along in 1450, and that's whenever um, it was easier to make, mass produce, sure, and it was easy to print on. Industrial. So yes, so the 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 industrial book revolution. That's right. Happened <laughs> with the printing press. Okay, so where, what about the Bible itself? Okay, it was originally the manuscripts were written on these old. Uh, 
parchments or these old scrolls, and right. they were transmitted onto uh, vellum and, and parchments and, and codexes. In um, we a lot of this is review because we covered it in our history part, but right. in 400 AD. We have the first real translation. The Vulgate. The Vulgate is made, uh, and it's based on Greek manuscripts, and it's based on Jewish um, he- Hebrew manuscripts. Right. The Codex Alexandrius, the Sinaiticus, and the... Well, Vat- well the no, that's much later. <laughs> oh, that's earlier, isn't it? Yeah, well... The original manuscripts? Yeah, but we'll get to the... the those are the manuscripts that uh, Vulgate that were in the Vulgate. Um, really? Yes. I have this um, wrong. The, those those manuscripts actually were very. Uh, they get they had the, they got the boot, and we'll explain all that in a minute. So, <laughs> they got the kick. Okay, yes. gotcha. No one no one really accepted those. There was only two of those manuscripts that were available at the time, and well, in 400 AD, he was using uh, uh, a slew of Greek manuscripts, and he was using some Hebrew. Uh, manuscripts that he that he got from the Jews. So that's in 480. Now huh. in, in 1380 is the first English translation, right? By Wycliffe, right? And we talked about him being yeah. a reformer and all that stuff. Uh, he translated his translation based on the Vulgate. So okay, Vulgate's based on the Greek manuscripts. Now he's translating based on the Vulgate. So you've got right. a level of a translation of a translation right. happening. Okay, 1455, the Gutenberg Press is invented. <laughs> and the very first printed Bible is the printed. Nope, it's the Gutenberg Bible, oh, which, yeah, that's which right. is a Latin Bible. Vulgate. Uh, so it's not a translation. It's just... A, a printing. Translated <clears throat> It's printing. the first printing. Of it. Oh, it's just the printing. Yes. Okay. So it's a Latin Vulgate, but it's the Gutenberg Bible. Right. Duh. Okay. okay. So. I'm getting there. Sorry. 1525, my man William Tyndale. That's right. He translates the Bible into English, and he's the first one to actually print it and mass produce it. Okay. This happens. He's, he bases his translation on the Vulgate, the, the Latin Vulgate, and... The original manuscripts that uh, that Jerome used to translate the Vulgate, he got his manuscripts from Erasmus. Now, Erasmus, we talked about him in the Reform- Reformation right. thing. Erasmus uh, compiled over five thousand Greek manuscripts, the oldest one dating back to about nine hundred, and compiled them all into what is now called the majority text. He called it Textus Receptus because it was the received text. It was the text that he believed was inspired. Inspired. Because he believed it was inspired because he had so many copies that all sang in harmony. So all these copies were almost the same. So he would take them and mash them together. And he did a lot of research. There are a few passages that made it into... uh, there's a, a big debate about manuscripts because you might find a manuscript that's got something in it that none of the rest of them have. Right. And it's always like, well, should I include that passage or did somebody add it? See, that's always the question. Right. Did someone add this passage? Why is that passage there? And so there were a couple of manuscripts that differed, but they had very strong theological support. Uh, there's one passage in particular that Erasmus was hung up on it was it's first John five, and it's it's often called the Johannine Coma. 
Hmm. And uh, so, so what this passage is, it's the one that says there are three in heaven that agree, the Father, the, the Word, and the Spirit. Right. And all are one. So it's kind of the doctrine of the Trinity. Yeah, the Trinity. Right and so uh, it's only in a handful of manuscripts and, uh, and as he's going through his whole list. And he's conflicted. Should I put it in there or not? It's good theology because it supports the Trinity. Right. But it's not in these other manuscripts. Right. So what does he do? He goes to the Vulgate, and it's there. Okay, which means even though my oldest manuscript is 900 A.D., I'm going to a translation from 400 A.D., and it is there. So apparently the manuscript that, um, I keep forgetting his name, Jerome, the manuscript that Jerome used, or the one, right. one of the ones he chose to use, contained it. So... That gives it some historical evidence. Validity, yeah. So he calls up the Vatican because there's a known trans, there's a known manuscript that didn't match any of his other five thousand manuscripts. Right. This is the Vaticanus. So the Codex Vaticanus is one of them that you mentioned. Right. That's from three forty A.D. Yes, it dates back really old, but it doesn't jive with hardly any of the other translations. There's all kinds of errors and, dis- huh. and differences between them. So it has always been at the Vatican. Uh, the Vatican Library had it going all the way back to like 300 or something. Uh, no, I mean uh, about uh, 1450. Sorry. So, uh, so anyway, whenever Erasmus is getting ready to compile his text, yeah. he writes them and says, "Is First John five and seven? <laughs> you know, is this passage in right. there?" And they said, uh, "Nope, sorry." So, so. The, there is some myth around this, some legend or whatever, that says that Erasmus did not want the Johannin comma in huh. the text. However, under pressure from the church, he left it because it supported the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, I don't know how relevant that is, Wow! but it is in Erasmus his collection, the majority text. Right. And that is the the primary manuscript source for all the ancient English translations. Hmm. So Tyndale used it, and so it's in Tyndale's Bible. Right. Um, and uh, Tyndale also uh, leaned on the Vulgate. So then, uh, 10 years later, 1535, Coverdale translates his, which is based on the Tyndale. Tyndale, yep. So straight up from the Tyndale. Yeah, it's another translation of a translation. Right. Uh, 1537, the Matthews Bible, which is not even really a translation. It's a compilation between Tyndale and the things that Coverdale had in there that Tyndale did not. Coverdale did go back to the Old Testament and fill in some blanks that Tyndale didn't have. Huh. So um, Matthew's Bible is based on the Tyndale and Coverdale, or it basically is. Uh, in 1539, you have the Great Bible, and we talked about it. It's the big one that they put that the, right. the Catholics approved of, chained on the pulpit, chained it to the pulpit. So the Great uh, Bible is a direct um, translation from Tyndale and the Matthews, which is the Tyndale anyway. Right. <laughs> so it it's basically uh, a new version of the Tyndale. 1560. You have the Geneva translation. This right. is the one that happens in Geneva, Switzerland, with the Calvinists and all those guys. Right. Basically, the biggest change in that is the sidebar comments they made that were all Calvinistic, Calvinistic. and they were all anti-Catholic and Protestant-based. <laughs> right. And uh, but the Geneva translation was widely 
publicized uh, the the Puritans that came over here in the United States. This was the Bible that they had. So all all our early American Bibles are Geneva translations. Right. Um, so the this Geneva translation is based on the Great Bible, and it's based on the Matthews Bible, which goes back to so. Translation of, translation. translation of a translation. Translation of a translation of a translation. 1568, the Bishop's Bible. This is the approved Bible, that the, the first Bible, English Bible, that the Catholics said, okay, we can, distribute, we can distribute it. Right. And so the Bishop's Bible is a revision of the Geneva Bible. Let's right. strip out all those Protestant comments. <laughs> <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And make it yeah, just where Bible. we can hand it out. So this is the Bishop's Bible. 1609, the Douay Bible, which is a... Direct Vulgate. Exactly. It's an English translation straight from the Vulgate, very similar to the Wycliffe Bible. Right. However, once again, this was a Catholic thing because they were... They were a little bit upset with some of the wording of the Tyndale-based translations. Right, the word "church" being translated as "congregation." Congregation, yeah. Yeah, and they were uh, they just didn't like a lot of the elders instead of priests. Right, and so they went back to uh, this is our Bible, more or less. And, right, and so that they did that in 1609. Now 1611, bam, big old year because this is the King James translation. Hey, the original authorized King <laughs> the James authorized version. version. Happens in 1611 right. when King James um, decides that he wants to mass produce the Bible. So that's why it became the authorized version. It was authorized by the King of England. Right. That's why it's called the authorized, the authorized version. version. So the King James Bible was was uh, he picked out 47 scholars to do this, and um, a, there's a lot of misinformation these days about what the King James Bible is. The King James Bible is really not even a translation. It is a revision of the Bishop's Bible, right. which was a revision of the Geneva, Geneva Bible, Bible, which was a revision of the Great of the Great Bible of the Matthews, which was a revision of the Matthews, right. which was a revision of the Tyndale. Right. So, in fact, seven seven books or seven Bibles before the King James, eight counting the the Douai, which was right. wasn't even a, a part of that. But so you have eight. English versions before the authorized King James version. Right now, here's here's the, the the thing to remember about the King James. If you're if you're if you're leaning on this King James holy inspired translation thing, um, there's some weirdness about this translation. That I'm not I'm not trying to cut it down. I love the King James. Right yeah. it, out of the mass produced Bibles, it's it's one of my favorites. But there are issues with it that deal with, for example. Um, King James told these scholars in in putting together the translation, it must it must coincide with the Bishop's Bible. Huh. If there's any debatable uh, usage of language, refer to the Bishop's, Bishop's Bible. It has to jive with it. And the reason why he gave them that rule is because political issues with the Catholic Church. He wanted to make sure that it jived right. with their popular Bible. And, That's uh, why it says church instead of assembly. Right. And that was actually specifically mentioned. Right. I want ecclesia to be translated church, not congregation, not assembly. So in weird, some weird places like Matthew 18, where it says, uh, 
you know, if you have a problem with a brother, go to, to uh, one or two witnesses. If you can't resolve it, take it before the church. Okay, this is Jesus talking prior to his death and resurrection. This is prior to the body of Christ being established on right. the day of Pentecost. There was no such thing as church, church as we assembly. see it when the Jesus tra- was talking. Tra- so he so he was referring to an assembly, probably talking about synagogue, but because of this edict, they had to translate that word church. church. Hmm. And it fit right into the, the Catholic uh, leaning of what the church was, a right. governing body. They didn't see it as the, individual congregations that were all collectively the body of Christ. Of Christ yeah. They saw it as the governing political body. Yeah. And so it, in context of reading Jesus' teaching now, it makes it sound like, oh, you've got a problem you can't resolve among yourself. You take it to the governing body, the you church. You take it to us. Yeah. We are the we are the officials and we'll straighten it out. That's right. So um <clears throat> So, so there are things like that about the king. There's like I can't remember six or seven strict edicts that King James gave huh. to the forty-seven scholars. And uh, by the way, they referenced the original manuscripts, but they did not translate from the original manuscripts. So they referenced it as a reference material. Gotcha. So basically, it's a it's a translation from the bishops, direct translation from the bishops, or direct connection. But they mm-hmm. they don't translate from the original. Right. It's a revision right. of the bishops' Bible. Wow. So uh, 1881, you have the revised version, which was based on the King James version. And they actually did do some original translation going back to the original manuscripts, going back to the Masoretic text. And now they pulled in from the Masoretic, I mean the uh, Alexandrian text. So I'll talk about that in just a minute because this is 1881. This is after a huge discovery happened. Okay, 1901, uh, the ASV comes out, the uh, American Standard Version. Yes. Which is based on... The revised version. Right. (laughs) So it's another revision of a revision. Um, 1952. The American Standard Version was based on the English Revised Version. That's right. That's right. Okay, so. My bad. (laughs) From 1952 till current, you've got a big old list of translations. Oh, yeah. And almost all of them are largely um, based on uh, a collection. They're based on the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Alexandrian text, and the previous English text. So they do reference the King James and others as well, uh, but they mostly, when they go back to the original manuscripts, they go back to the Alexandrian text, which we haven't talked about yet, and the Dead Sea Scrolls, which we haven't talked about yet. So what are these Alexandrian texts? (laughs) You mentioned them a while ago. What are the names of them? Uh, The Codex uh, Alexandrius. Codex Sinaiticus and Codex, uh, well, the Codex, Codex um, Vaticanus. Yes, which is, uh, but we mentioned the Vatican. Yes, already. but just briefly. Right. Um, so, out of those three, two of them have been known to exist for a long time. Um, right. Uh, the Vaticanus was, like we said, in the Vatican. That's where it got its name. Right. Uh, dating all the way back to 1450. No one knows where it came from. There's a lot of debate about its source. Um, it dates back, as I can tell from dating methods, it dates back to 320 to 350 A.D., which right. is old. Right. Okay, but the problem, The oldest. Yeah, but oldest the problem one. with it 
is that it doesn't jive with all these other manuscripts. You got five thousand and something manuscripts out right. there that it doesn't really jive. It doesn't fit with. with. Yep. There are missing passages in it. There are things that don't that aren't worded the same. There's corrections, and we talked about a scribe and how a scribe worked, and how he was really big on don't make corrections. He never makes corrections. You, yeah. you see these corrections in this. Now, this is also uh, what's called. It was it was unique because it was written in what's called. Uncial script, which is um, a, a kind of like a uh, Roman handwriting, uh, um, like uh, script handwriting, Roman style. The, what it was is it was all capital letters, no spaces, no no punctuation. So huh. you've got the letters going across the column, blamo. Right. <laughs> so that would have been really hard to read. <laughs> Like somebody screaming at the top of their lungs. Yeah. At you. So this is a style of writing that wasn't in most of the other, and so this is a very unique manuscript, and that's why it was kind of just kind of uh, whatever you uh, archived in the Vatican Library and sort of forgotten. Right. Um, Erasmus did you know make that reference to see if if the that one passage was in there. But uh, so you've got that one. You've got the uh, Alex Alex Dranicus or what? Um, Alex Alex Drana Drana <laughs> Alex Dranius. <laughs> that one. Yes. And it's named after Alexandria, Egypt. Right. So, <laughs> so the, this this one dates back to about four hundred to four hundred and forty A.D. So this is the the date of this manuscript. And this is probably what was confusing you earlier. Is about the same time that Jerome was translating in, into yeah, Latin. that's right. That's so why the dates on these date back to about that time. That's frame. right. But he obviously did not use these manuscripts because his text doesn't jive with them. It jives with the majority text that Erasmus put together. Right. Um, so this this particular text once again was written in Roman and Seal. So it's uh, hard to read in, in, in that strange form. And uh, it appears to have been written in Alexandria. But once again, its source is largely unknown. Hmm. Um, so it, it, there are great scholars who leaned on it and then ditched it 50 years later. Uh, <laughs> it, it's just weirdness around all this. Right. Okay, so no one really gave these two manuscripts much heed until... 1845 or 1844, a guy by the name of Tischendorf is a Russian. Now, <laughs> that's an awesome name, by the way. Tischendorf. Hello, I am Tischendorf. It's <laughs> <laughs> Konstantin von Tischendorf. So, Mr. Tischendorf was a, a linguist, scholar, all this. He's, his life ambition was to prove the Bible correct find more manuscripts. This was what he was after. And he did a lot of travel, a lot of study to try and do it. Now, in 1844, he traveled to, uh, outside of Alexandria, Egypt, he traveled, uh, I guess that would be west, to the Sinai Peninsula and ended up at at St. Catharines. Now, St. Catharines is a monastery at the base of the traditional Mount Sinai. And whenever my family went to uh, Israel and Egypt and Jordan, Mm -hmm. We, we went there, and it was really, it's a cool place. I mean, it's amazing. It's this monastery out in the middle of nowhere. Huh. And I mean, it looks, it's in the wilderness of the Old Testament. Like, yeah. I mean, all there's there's very little vegetation. Um, it looks like Mars. Right. So, 
So anyway, there's some weird stuff there. Like, for example, they, compl- they, they claim they have the original burning bush growing in the monastery, and it's still there. You can go touch it or whatever, and there's some weird things about it. No one has been able to identify it to a known species of, of plant on the planet. Are you serious? Um, no one knows how old it is. Uh, it grows like from under the foundation up through it, and it's really cool. Wow. But, but, uh, but anyway, this is where Tischendorf went, and he was talking with the monks and the scholars there, and he found in a trash bin, he found a handful, like 100 pages, right. of what he thought was the Septuagint, which was, and part of it was the Septuagint, uh, which is the Greek translation of right. the Old Testament. Old Testament. So he found this, and he was like, hey, guys, what is this? And the monks are like, oh, we're just going to burn that. <laughs> He's like, oh, you mind if I have, if I take it? And then they just went, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> There might be some value to it. So they let him take like 40 pages home with him. And he went and archived them and did some research on them and found out that uh, it's part of larger writing. So he goes back, and after a few trips, he finds the entire thing. And it's this manuscript that dates back to 330. Wow. And so it's it's the discovery of the century because it matches Vaticanus and Alexandrius. So it matches those other two codexes. That have been pushed aside. Right. So now people are starting to think, wait a minute, the oldest manuscripts we have. Those must be right. Those must be right. Maybe these 5,000 have been wrong right. all this time. So there was a guy by the name of Westcourt and a guy by the name of Hort, Westcourt, Westcott and Hort, who got on this bandwagon a few years later. Right. And they started promoting it and saying, this is... The, the best, the original, the best manuscripts right. to use for translation, and there's a lot of weirdness about that. Those guys weren't even Christians; they were ghost hunters. They were there's, <laughs> it's just some weird stuff there. But what they did was they compiled it, kind of like Erasmus did, and they called it. Um, well, now if you see one that's labeled a Greek manuscript that's le- or a Greek co- compilation called the the Nestle Almond Oland text, that is. The Alexandrian text. Right. So, scholars are always debating which manuscripts are the best. Uh, most modern scholars use the Alexandrian text because of its age. I'm not a fan of that because, there's there, one, there's a lot of missing passages. And there's this, always a debate. Well, the older ones are missing it. The newer ones have it. So, does that mean that someone was adding to right. it? And so, like, you have th- things like the last half of the book of Mark right. is missing right. in those. In those uh, but most translators go back to the majority text and use the majority text to fill in the blank. Right. But they don't always do that. But now you'll have brackets around them. Yeah, some, some translations yeah, do that. Like the ESV has brackets and yeah. the, the new NIV. Some of them put it in footnotes at the bottom. Right. But. Um, and, and then there's like First John 5 and 7 is missing from almost every new translation right. um, because it's not in these texts at all. Uh, but Revelation's not in, in the Sinaiticus. We're going to throw it out too? <laughs> Come on. But, so anyway, I'm, I'm not a big fan of using the Alexandria. Well, you've had the theory, though, that it might have been a, from a uh, Gnostic scholar. Well, or Gnostics in general, because yeah. the Gnostics around three and four hundred A.D. were in Alexandria, right, in the Sinai Peninsula, and they were also prominent. They yeah. were writing all of those Gnostic gospels at that time. Who's to say this isn't part of the, of right. their work? Uh, because a lot of the things that are left out 
are things that deal with the nature of Christ. Right, like the Trinity. Right, and that was what they always had issue with. And so some of these new translations, there are people that get up in arms about the new translations because they do call into question some of the nature of Christ because of the manuscript they're drawing off of. Right. So so whenever you're reading a manuscript or reading a translation, just know that almost all the new ones do are missing some stuff from the majority text. And, you know, it's up to you to determine whether or not older is better or, right. <laughs> or whether the majority text should reign. Uh, okay, so we're running out of time. But, hey, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Got to talk about the Dead yeah, Sea Scrolls. Yeah, huge. 1946, Dead Sea Scrolls are discovered. Do you know the story? So this uh, shepherd boy is a uh, <laughs> little Muslim shepherd. Boy. Little Muslim shepherd boy is Muhammad. Somebody, yeah, he has lost some sheep in the caves uh, around the Dead Dead Sea, and he's like, "I gotta get those sheep out." But instead of going in to get the sheep out, he throws rocks in the cave to scare the sheep out. And when he throws a rock, he hears a <laughs> a break, and he throws another rock, and he's like. Breaking, he goes in and he pulls out these jars, and in the jars he finds these scrolls, and he sells them. Right, right, and they go into the marketplace basically. <laughs> and then I don't remember who it was that found them, um, but a uh, he sold them for like a hundred dollars, ninety-seven dollars, and right, some odd cents. So, but yeah, exactly. That's exactly what happened. He was in the area of Qumran. Uh, which is right off the Dead Sea, yeah, and uh, finds these, breaks these um, these pottery, sh- he sh- shatters the pot, these pottery right. that contains these scrolls and fragments of scrolls. Uh, so whenever people realize what this is, they start doing excavation, right? right? And they go to that area, and they between the next two years, this was 1946. Between 1946 and 48, they pull some 15,000 fragments of over 600 manuscripts out out of this cave. Proverbial treasure trove. Oh, yes. Talk about the find of the century. Sure. This was, this is huge. Um, So now, what is the the value of of this? Oh. or what for the translation community? What's in it, what is in these Dead Sea Scrolls? I guess the, the ancient, uh, their their um, Old Testament uh, script that predates the the Septuagint, isn't it? Or, yes, yes. There 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 are original Hebrew writings in there that date back prior to um, any translation we've got. Right, exactly. So um, the the really cool thing is. The, the Masoretic text, of course, this is prior, prior to the New Testament, so it's right. all Old Testament stuff. Now, there is more than Scripture found in these scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls contains um, tons of stuff, yeah. ancient myths and writings and things that aren't included in the Bible and biblical stuff. So the entire book of Isaiah for sure is there. Almost uh, all of the Old Testament was found throughout these fragments. Right. Um, the, the amazing thing is is that almost letter for letter, word for word, it matches the Masoretic um, text, yeah. which is the... That's what I meant to say, Masoretic. That's uh, the Hebrew translation. Translation of the Old or, Testament. Uh, sorry, not it's not a translation. The Hebrew compilation of the Old Testament right. that dated back to 900 A.D. So you've got 
a span of over a thousand years there where nothing changed. Wow. So it gives credibility validity and credibility to the to the ancient tra- to the translation to the manuscripts that we have that are 900 plus right so all these arguments about older being better it's not necessarily true right because we're finding out through the dead sea scrolls that the these 5000 manuscripts and stuff that we had that Erasmus compiled and all this they're jiving at least the 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 Old Testament scriptures in there are jiving letter for letter with this manuscript that was found way before Christ. Right. So um, there's also a lot of debate about the Dead Sea Scrolls, mainly because a lot of people are saying because other texts were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, then that means they're uh, books of the Bible that have been missing. Okay, whatever. The Book of Enoch. These are not... Jewish tradition will tell you (laughs) that... uh, these were not uh, venerated as Holy Scripture. Right. They were just other writings that were referenced. Right. Uh, there's the Assumption of Moses. There is a small uh, fragment of a book called The Assumption of Moses, which is about uh, Moses' death and how Satan wanted to venerate Moses' body by uh, burying it in a mountaintop and displaying it to the public. And God chose to bury Abraham himself. And Michael had a big debate about all this. <laughs> and Jude references it. Jude makes mention of, of Moses contending over the body of, Mo, of Abraham. Uh, of, no, uh, no, Michael the archangel contending with God over the body of Moses. of Moses. This is from that little... And so they found that, wow. that reference in there. So... Um, there's, all, there's good things in the Dead Sea Scrolls. It don't think that just because it was found in those jars, it means it's a Bible book that has been lost in time. Right. It's just an, a, another one of their... There was all kinds of stuff out there. Sure. So, um, okay, so the last thing that um, to talk about is translation methodologies. Sure. So we mentioned a little bit of this at first, and so I thought it'd be good to bring it up. There are three types of methods whenever you translate the Bible. And there is what's called word for word. Now, the idea behind the word for word translation is we want to be exact. Literal. We want to be as exact as possible. Right. So let's translate every word per word and, 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 uh, and make the translation as accurate as possible. Now, although that is a good idea <laughs> a lot can be lost in translation by doing it sure because a lot of the times accuracy isn't in the definitions of the words as much as it is the context right so sometimes you have to do a little bit more with it right and anyone who knows languages like more than one language especially languages that aren't similar to one another will tell you there is no such thing as a word for word translation there can't be because the words, because the dialect is different, right, and the grammar is different, right, and a lot of languages put verbs before 
the subject. Well, you can lose meaning in translation by by doing word for word. So, I mean, if you translate, if you, uh, yeah, you're talking about a, a subject verb predicate, right? Versus a you know a uh, usually a verb and then a predicate subject, right? Right. And so, if you're trying to translate word for word, uh, you know, you could go. Uh, jumped the dog, right? You know, right, right. versus the dog jumped, right? right. <laughs> so you can't do an exact word for word in, in a lot of right. different translations. Uh, there is what's called interlinear translations, which that's what it, this is. If you're going to go word for word, this is what this is. That's right. Because what it does is it writes the original language and then puts a a translation of each word underneath it. Exactly. Now, you can't read it very well if you try to. Re- it doesn't read well. It's not going to register with your English vernacular, right? Yeah. And so, like. Well, a perfect example is, you know, here in Texas, there's a lot of Hispanics and a lot of Spanish-speaking people. Right. So we, we have a lot. We know, you know, some Spanish words and Spanish phrases and that sort of thing. So um, if, you, if I were to say, how do you say you're welcome in Spanish? <laughs> do you remember? Uh, de nada. There you go. Okay. De nada. Does de nada mean you're welcome? No. Word for word. It means don't mention it. It means of, day is of. Of nothing. Nada means nothing. In other so, words, no big deal. So it's not a word-for-word right. translation. You can't, you can't do word-for-word translation. Right, because it's not, you don't use the same vernacular right. in different languages. So any translator has to take some liberties to make it understandable in English or any other you know drastic different right. language. So... There is really no such thing as a word-for-word translation unless you're reading an interlinear. Right. Um, so some people admit that. I had a. It's amazing that you say this. I had a a um, a, a church member come to me and ask me the literal translation of a, a scripture just two days ago, mm-hmm. and so I have a program on my computer that shows it's the King James, and then it has the Strong's. Right, uh, right, letters right beside it, you know, and so mm-hmm. I show, I click on the word, and he goes, "Now I don't want their, I don't want the King James translation into that." And I'm like, "Well, what you're talking <laughs> about is, I mean, this is the closest you're going to get versus not understanding this at all." And this yeah. is exactly what we're talking about. Well, Strong's is a great tool, sure, this, but because what what did Strong's do? What he did, he, um. He went back and defined word for word where the translation came from. Right. So, and he used a King James, and that's why you really have to use a King. Well, you don't have to. There's a couple of those that have, people have gone through the work of mapping it. Yeah. But but Strong's is the best. But Strong's just, versus King James, they just work well together. But he, right. he used the King James whenever he did his right. his numbering system. So, um, so yeah, okay, so let's talk about what are some um, word-for-word translations. You've got the King James. The NASB. The NASB, N-A-S-B, the, what is that, New, new American, American Standard. Standard. It used to be the American Standard. It's now the New American Standard. And that's the one that hardcore word-for-words yeah. will stand on. It, it, yeah, going on a scale from left to right, it is probably the most right. word-for-word translation. Right. Um, You've got the Amplified Bible. You've got the ESV, uh, King James, New King James. 
These are all yeah. word for word. I love what the Amplified does because it gives you, so it'll be like, it'll give a sentence like, uh, Jesus walked to Galilee, Jesus walked, and then in parentheses will be wandered, ran, you know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> like any other <laughs> possible translation of exactly. that word. Exactly, and then it keeps going. That's just, I like that. <laughs> yeah. really so, um, well, some people, you know, admit that you have to, to do a little thinking when you translate. That to get the the point across, sure. And so this is called thought for thought translation or dynamic equivalent. Yeah. So this separates a little bit from word to from word to word, word from word, because what you're doing is now you're you're translating basically sentence at a time right. instead of word at a time, and uh, which falls in line with what we just did with your welcome and de nada. Right. How does the person in Spanish express the same thought that you say in English when you say you're welcome? <laughs> so it's not word for word. I didn't say of nothing whenever the Hispanic asks me or says uh, thank you. Or <laughs> right. and I say you're welcome. I didn't say of nothing <laughs> <laughs> because no one would understand. That. You'd trip him out. Right? <laughs> That'd be so great. So uh, so you do a thought for thought right. translation. So this still is accurate translation. Sure. In fact, many argue it is more accurate because you don't lose the thought right. behind the sentence, but you can lose uh, a deeper meaning. I'll give you a good example. Um, the NIV, when the NIV reads, uh, talks about the death of Lazarus, mm-hmm. um, it says uh, it says in there that Jesus knew that Lazarus was sick, but he didn't go on to Bethany. Okay, or something like that. Right, that. right. Uh, and that's not a direct quote, but that's pretty much what it says. Uh, but the actual rendering of that verse is uh, Jesus knew that Lazarus was going to die pretty much or was sick, and so he didn't go to Bethany. Right. Right? right. So you have this deeper meaning whenever you have a word-for-word translation, but when you do it thought-for-thought, well, it can't mean that Jesus decided to stay away from Lazarus because, you know, it says Lazarus was sick and Jesus knew that. So sometimes it can twist the meaning up. So either way, you know, you, right. you have to have a balance. Well, we are always at the mercy of the translator. That's right. There is always thoughts that go into the translation. Yeah. So even these word-for-word translations, I'm telling you, there's not a real word-for-word. Yeah, that's They're right. They're close. They strive to be as close as possible so we're always at the mercy of the thoughts of the translator and the doctrines of the translator because he lets that in, even if it's in the back of his mind. Sure. He lets that. Now, that's why a volume of translators is a good idea. That's right. Because you can compile the thoughts together. And there's a recent translation called the NET, the New English Translation, yeah. which did this. They brought in a lot of scholars, and they all did this, and they put their heads together, and there was a lot of places where they disagreed. Yeah. So what did they did, or what did they do? They wrote tons of translator notes to say, most of us thought that this was the best way to render this, but it could be rendered like this and like this and like that. Right. And so 
I love the translation simply because I've got all their notes. Sure. <laughs> and so you can say, mm, I wonder why they chose to say that. Why did they leave this out? Why didn't they put that in? Right. And they'll say, we did, we chose to not to lean on this tra- this manuscript and not this one because of X, Y, and Z. Right. And so, and I appreciate that. Sure. And so you have this thought for thought thing that is, uh, I, I guess, my personal opinion, thought for thought is more accurate than word for word, simply because you can lose the thought by trying to stick too much to words themselves. So, um, but there is another type of translating technique called paraphrase. Right. (laughs) Now, paraphrase is going to be on the left hand of this chart. Exactly. So you have a right wing and a left wing where this is concerned. (laughs) So the the paraphrase translation basically says, I'm going to read the whole book or the whole chapter or whatever, and then I'm going to summarize it and write it in a way that that, that fits what was, it's kind of like the, the idea behind Thought for Thought, but it takes it to the nth degree. Some of these translations are like the message. That's the number one paraphrase. And and I won't, whenever somebody's asking me, is the translation, uh, is the, the message, and I'll say, the message is not a translation. I don't believe the message is a Bible. I believe the message is a paraphrase of the Bible. So don't take it as gospel truth. I'm very adamant about that. Well, I will see. say that even as a paraphrase, it has some intrinsic value. Oh, yeah, so, most definitely. So, like, I mean, I'll, I'll tell my kids to study in it. I mean, I would even I would even put it above some commentaries. Yeah. But whenever you're reading it, you have to bear in mind what it is. It is somebody's paraphrase. Is Eugene Peterson? Sure. <laughs> telling you what the Bible says. Right. So um, one of the things I dislike about the message big time is that it sounds like a hippie from the '60s. It does. Doesn't it? I mean, he's like you know, he's going through the sins of the flesh, and one of them is dirty sex. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, what? Like clean sex is fine. But I, mean, sex <laughs> I don't know. It, it, there's just weird things like that in it. But um, so I'm not a big fan of paraphrased Bibles. Um, the message I get a, a kick out of it. I laugh at it some because of its strange choice of sure <laughs> of wording. But uh, so here's what I would like to see. So if you're a Bible translator out there, <laughs> I want to see this. I want to see a, a good thought for thought translation based on the majority text. Can you do that? <laughs> I mean, why? Why does all all the thought for thought translations are based on um, on the Alexandrian, Alexandrian text, text yeah. it's like okay, but I don't believe that people added stuff to the Bible along the lines. But you see, you know, thought for thought people like like yourself are kind of a <laughs> kind of more liberal, and so they go with the Alexandrian text. I'm just saying, I'm just saying. Hey, I no, did say King James is my favorite. Totally joking. I like. Here's my 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 spiel on it. I'm very big on the whole. We need to have a, a smattering. Of different uh, Bibles, exactly. The the ant- when somebody asks you what's the best translation, your answer is so. Bring it home, Jeremiah. This is the point of the whole thing. That's right. When somebody asks you what your best translation is, your answer is all of them. Yes, put together. Yes, <laughs> I'm total agreement with that. Yeah. There is no such thing as a good translation. That's right. And every translation is a good translation. That's right. So that sounds contradictory, but it's not because because what we're saying is. 
one translation in and of itself is not good enough. Right. However, if you look at a the the sum of translations, you're going to get a bigger understanding of the passage. Right. Because you're going to get to see what translator A thought and what translator B thought, and it's kind of like doing what the NET did. You get you get all these notes. Yeah. It says, well, we chose this for this reason, and we chose to leave this one out because of this reason. We don't think that's an accurate uh, right. passage. So, and I mean, when they say that, they don't mean accurate as in doctrinally, but Historically, Historically, from a textual criticism, right? Exactly. So, yes, I think that is that's the conclusion of the the study is be filled with translation, right? And you know, we live in such an age. It is awesome that I can get on my new iPod that I have now and download all these different translations. And most of them, I mean, even if you just do the Bible app, they're all free. You just download them, Mm -hmm. and you can switch in between. Man, we're so blessed to have the Bible at our fingertips, and I believe that God is going to hold us to a higher account because of that. I really do. It's Um, it's like enlightenment. There there are more tools at your disposal now than there have ever been. And to discard them completely because they haven't been there for 400 years is ignorance. Yeah. God is God is is laying these these things out. A lot of people that hold on to this, well, that Bible was translated 400 years ago and God wouldn't leave us without the accurate Bible, so I believe it's the accurate Bible. Go back in history. You can yeah. say the same thing about the Latin Vulgate. Right. It was around a thousand, a thousand years, years by itself. Exactly. Is it the most accurate translation ever? No. <laughs> so, you know, let's 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 be educated about it and say, okay, I'm going to I'm going to glean from these translations to learn what the original message says. Right. Here's your alternative. Learn Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic. You learn those languages, you don't need a translation. That's right. And you can get it as accurate as you can possibly find if you read the right manuscript. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so you still have a, a dilemma right. to some degree. So, But anyway, that's it, guys. Uh, just make sure that whenever you're reading a translation that you take it with the understanding that it was translated by a man. That's right. And that things can get lost in translation. Uh-huh. So surround yourself with them. So you'll make sure to get the the closest thing to accurate as what you can. Right. And understandable as you can. And read. Yes. Read your Bible. That's the bottom. (laughs) It doesn't matter what translation you have if it's just sitting on the shelf and not doing anything. All right, Jeremiah. Thanks for being here, brother. Hey, thanks, David. You guys go out there and you uh, connect with us and you leave us some feedback because we need some. That's right. 972-885-7270. We'll see you. This has been the Theonauts Podcast. Call us with your questions or comments at 972-885-7270. That's 972-885-7270. We'd love to hear from you. You are tuned in to the GCT Network. This is your great commission. This is your Great Commission Transmission at GCTNetwork.com.